When we came to do the Euphoria album, we started recording it in 1998. So we hadn't actually made a Def Leppard sounding record since 1991, when we pretty much finished the Adrenalize album. What came after that was the Odds and Sods collection of Retroactive and then Slang. So it had been a good eight years, which is the exact amount of time the Beatles were together since we'd made the classic Def Leppard sound. So it felt very natural to go back to writing songs that were like the ones that we grew up listening to, the ones that we'd previously recorded ourselves. And this also coincided with what was happening in the music industry. It was moving away from the dark grunge to a much more up-tempo, poppy kind of grunge music, if you like. The bands like Sugar Ray and all this stuff, they were writing pop songs, you know. And so taking that into consideration and, and, and our, okay, we got that thing out of our system and we were all starting to write songs that were happy. I don't know, we just moved into that mood again. And so we had a lot of songs that were just rock. They just rocked, Demolition Man and, and Back In Your Face and stuff like that. There was a lot of pretty good songs on that record. So it, it was natural, it was totally natural because part of nature for us naturally is the environment around you. So you are listening to everything else that's going on and it just becomes part of that internal decision that everybody in the band makes and then collectively we make another one you know and as a group and that decision would be to to make a song an album that's that's that classic Def Leppard sound this is the growing up rock podcast with your host Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney now crank it up It's 1999, and after the failed experiment of slang, Def Leppard is back, baby. Or are they? We are talking all about the seventh studio album release from Def Leppard called Euphoria. Of course, I'm hanging with my co-pilot and the demolition man himself, Sonny Hollywood Pooney. What's up, dude? Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about this album, because until... Last week, I had never heard it in full. Really? Yeah. So you never spent any time with Euphoria at all, huh? No. I bought it when I was about to go see Def Leppard, like in, God, I think, oh, it was the Journey Show. We'll talk about that. But uh, it was way after the album came out, and I don't remember listening to the whole thing until about a week ago. Wow. All right. Well, as we do with all these Def Leppard episodes at the end of the month this year, we have to get a special guest involved. And who do we have for the Euphoria episode? Hollywood, tell us. Uh, Huddy, did you pick this album? David Hudson, our friend, did you pick this album? You gave me some to choose from. (laughs) So I chose this one. (laughs) All right. So from the State of America podcast and the Digital Killed the Radio Star podcast, David Hudson, Huddy, as we affectionately call him. What's going on, dude? 
Good to see you guys. It's been a while. So, Huddy, what were the choices? Kicking the balls, kicking the head, or this album? Or did I give you like real albums to pick from? You had messaged me, and you said a lot of them are taken. I think you gave me Euphoria, X, or 10, however they, whatever they want to call it. And I think like songs from the Sparkle Lounge. And so, <laughs> so basically, a kick in the head, a kick in the balls. <laughs> <in itself. laughs> you chose correctly, my friend. Four. <laughs> Fine shot. <laughs> oh, oh. I should have yelled two. <laughs> Why don't we walk this off, sir? Oh, so I chose Euphoria because I vividly remember when it came out. So it's not all terrible. No, it's not. And we'll get into all that for sure. So tell us about your podcast, David. Plug your podcast. I have the State of America podcast, which is a Black Crows and I guess Black Crows Universe podcast with my friend Ian Rice. We've had pretty much every member of the band on except Chris and Rich. They won't come on for some reason. We've had a lot. Susan Tedeschi, you know, she's a Grammy Award winner. And uh, we've had... uh, Gosh, Charlie Starr from Blackberry Smoke and a, a bunch of guys on the periphery. We really enjoy it. We started a Patreon a couple of months ago, and that is uh, proven to be a nice little revenue stream for us. And then I have Digital Kill the Radio Star with my buddy Chris Craig, and we don't do nearly as many as we used to. We're pretty much just doing interviews every now and then. The Black Crows one is the one that I'm spending the most time on right now. I think we're approaching 100 episodes and really just a drop in the bucket for what all we have planned. That's awesome. So. Let's start with, first of all, your history with Def Leppard and then your history with the album Euphoria. So Def Leppard is my guilty pleasure in music. Literally everybody I know makes fun of me, like my metal friends, my jam band friends, my people that listen to alternative music. They all make fun of me for listening to Def Leppard. But uh, so I freely admit they're a guilty pleasure. I got into um, them. Let's see. Hysteria came out in 87. I was 11. And by that point, from age six on, I was into music. My dad would go and get the uh, top 40 countdown records from the actual radio station after they played them and would bring them home for me. And I remember I was at this girl's house, Shannon Rogers. I always remember that. Lived right behind me. Her older sister had the tape and played it. And I was like, what is this? This is awesome. It was hysteria. And so I made a copy of it, but I forgot to write down the names of the songs. And so for like a solid year and a half, I didn't know the names of the songs. They were my first, like, I guess what you would say, rock show I ever went to in 92 in Memphis. It was on the Adrenalize Tour. Still one of the most memorable experiences of my life. I remember they did the thing where they had the, um, like, the tent, and they had, was it Clint Eastwood, you know, Are You Feeling Lucky Punk? Mm -hmm. And then it drops, and I was like, oh, my world has changed, you know. I listened to them. I actually liked slang a lot, but I pretty much quit listening to this kind of music when, I got to college in 94, I got real big into the jam band stuff and really had been five or six years. I hadn't even thought about any of this music and I was getting ready for grad school. And, um, I heard on the radio that, you know, it was like a return to form for Def Leppard and, you know, it was going to be another album with IA at the back. And so I went and actually got it on release day and, um, was kind of like, maybe it's better. Some things be left in the past. (laughs) And, and, uh, so I'd really, haven't listened to it much since then. You know, I, I'll go see Def Leppard if they come around. And So basically, uh, your initial reaction to this record was not very favorable, it sounds like. I thought it was sad. <laughs> Sonny and I will have a philosophical disagreement on this, and he's passionate, I'm passionate, and that's why I love Sonny. He's one of my favorite people I've met through podcasting. But I do not like when a band has a classic sound. I do not like for them to stay stagnant. Now, the only band, in my opinion, that's ever gotten a, gotten away with it is ACDC. 
for instance, let's just take the Black Crows. Their first album was kind of a 70s hard rock album. Southern Harmony moved more like Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. By the time they got to Three Snakes, they were a jam band. It was a drug record, you know, and their sound changed. And so I applauded them for doing slang. And I felt like this commercially did so bad with their fans. They were just grasping at straws, trying to get some of that past glory back. When I fall in love with a band, I fall in love with a band because they're an apple. Okay. If I love this band, I love apples, right? I don't want to bite into an apple and taste a mango. I don't, that doesn't sit well with me. So I like a band to stay the lane. It's okay if they experiment a little. I don't hate experimentation, but uh, I disagree with, uh, well, I approach things with bands differently than you. I don't disagree with you. I just approach them differently. Sonny, how about you? What's your history with Euphoria? Yeah, I didn't have much. Yeah. 1999, I'm busy getting married for a second time to the person I'm still married to. Yeah. So different things become important, yeah. right? I had, I had uh, really kind of cut back on shows and cut back on kind of music in general and was kind of just staying in my bang zone. 2006, I get a chance to see Def Leppard because Journey opened. And the only reason I went, I had seen both bands, right? I didn't have a reason to go. Only reason I went was Jeff Scott Soto was singing leads. Mm-hmm. So I did backstage passes, you know, met the journey guys, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go to Def Leppard. I haven't heard any Def Leppard since Adrenalize. I probably should buy some of this stuff. Right. And I had heard a little bit of slang, but I had given up on that so fast it was done. So I'm like, well, maybe I'd go buy some of the records that I missed. And this was one of the ones I missed. I probably listened to it piecemeal, you know, in the car on the way there going, eh, that's not Pyromania. And, and just kind of, Stuck it, but I, I mean, I still got the original CD that I bought, you know, in 2006, but there wasn't anything I listened to until uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Huddy, what is your favorite restaurant? Like, what's your go to restaurant? Do you have a go to? Like, all chips are down. I can go to this restaurant. I'm happy. Uh, it's a place here called Kessler Prime. I really like I told you guys, Husk in Nashville is amazing. And uh, what, what is, what does Husk have that you love? What kind of food that they have? It's uh farm to table. They change the menu every day. They're, uh, Gosh, they uh, like they cure the, all their ham. They cure for twenty four yeah. months in the place. Um, okay, so what happens if you go to Husk tomorrow and they're a Thai place now? <laughs> it's still called Husk, but now they only have Thai food. But I'll try it, and it may, still may be good. <laughs> oh my god! I do. I do exactly where you would go with that. It took me a minute to understand where the hell you were going. I was like, "Where is this conversation going?" The restaurant out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> All right, real quick, Sonny. You're a Motley Crue fan, right? Yes. You and I both love the Karabi album. Absolutely. I do not like most of the other Motley Crue albums. I don't either. Well, okay. Well, then we get... (laughs) Come on, Steven. I tolerate it because of the music. I absolutely cannot stand Vince's voice, but I will go back to 94 anytime. Okay. I like 94 a lot, and I do like a lot of the other Motley Crue records, but to me... That's not a complete apples and oranges thing. I think it's more like green apples and red apples, right? So it's it's just a little bit, it's still in the same avenue, the same lane, but it's a little bit different. And that wasn't what we were talking about earlier. It was a lot different when we were talking about that kind of stuff earlier. Let me share my experience with Euphoria, which is a lot like Sonny's. I really don't have a lot of experience with Euphoria. 1999 was a a weird time for me because 
you know, I'd recently quit touring and was more in the corporate world at this point and doing that. So I really was not connected to music very much at all in 1999. So this is a record that came to me much later after I'd seen them live. I want to say on one of their uh, tour packages where they come through with two or three bands and they played that song Promises, which we'll talk about live in the set. And that made me want to go back and visit that album. So that's when I first returned to Euphoria, which was much, much later after it had come out. But that's really my only experience with, with that record. I was really looking forward to it when I read this was coming out. You know, I was excited about it. And I remember I called the place. It was a small CD store. I said, are y'all going to have it? And she said, yeah, we're going to have it, you know, the day it comes out. So, I mean, I went and got it the day it came out. And After Slang, I just kind of gave up on them. I mean, I was so disappointed in Slang and just the departure. And I was no huge fan of Hysteria. And, you know, I mean, so it was just a gradual departure from Pyromania for me. And I just wasn't into it. So, and then, like I said, I was disconnected from music as a whole. Let's find out a little bit of the basic facts. The album was released on June 8th of 1999. It was recorded from May of 98 through March of 99. So this is probably the quickest record they ever recorded up until this point. They recorded it at Joe's Garage Studio in Dublin, Ireland. The length of the record is 5107. Mercury Records is the label. The producer was Pete Woodruff. Pete Woodruff was involved in slang, and they bought him back for this one. And then for the first time, I think Def Leppard is also producer credit on this record. The record was certified gold in the U.S., so 500,000 copies. So here's some quotes from the band regarding the Euphoria album. These quotes were taken in 1999. Joe Elliott says, rock and roll is our signature, and we're actually quite proud of it. If anything, our mistake was briefly venturing away from it. Phil Collins says, the signal could not have been more clear. People have decided what they want from this band, and that's just fine with us. We enjoy making records like Euphoria. That's code for slang really bit the big one, and uh, we're not going to be at Spare Bed Tid anymore. Here's a record closer to what we were. Joe Elliott says, look at the charts. People are getting bored to tears with alternative whining. They want big time rock and roll stars again. They want excitement. Sonny, do you think that they gave uh, the fans what they wanted with this record? I think there's places okay. where they did, but I think in whole, and I've said it before, the female fan is probably the most loyal fan. Yeah. You dump them at slang. You're not getting them back three years later. That's not happening. Do you think in 1999 that people are getting bored to tears with alternative whining? I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. How about you, Huddy? You agree with that statement? It was kind of like that third wave of hair metal. You had the post-grunge movement. And so you had your Seven to Mary Threes. You had your Shinedown about to come out, you know, bands like that. And at that point, which I really loved the grunge movement, but they had really watered that down. And if you remember, this is about the time some of these bands started a little bit of a resurgence. You had the Poison and Cinderella tour and some of those other tours like that, that kind of were getting more people than they did six or seven years ago. And so I think if, you know, stuck your finger to the wind, you could see, hey, this kind of music starting to make a slight comeback. And we, on our last album, we alienated 
the majority of our fans and we didn't gain any new ones. And so we probably need to return to form a little bit. Yep. Let's discuss the album artwork. This will not take long. It's pretty simple. It's basically the logo in brighter colors. And that's pretty much it. It's done by the same guy that did Hysteria, Andy Airfix. He also did the Pyromania cover. What are your thoughts on this cover versus something like a slang, David? I may be reading too much into this, but I think it's them saying we're back to being who we are. And it's no fluff, no bells and whistles. Yeah, it sends a clear message, which I think was their intentions from the get-go. Sonny, what are your thoughts on the album cover? Yeah, same. I think it's weird that there's three lights behind it, because at first I thought it was maybe it was supposed to be headlights, but it's three lights, so that's a little weird. But I think the pictures tell more story. Okay. Right? Everybody's got their hair cut. Yeah. Right? And no matter what picture you look at, what happens is Joe and Sav are doing the mean mug. But the other three are really having a hard time not smiling. Right. <laughs> it's like, it feels like they're holding it back and everybody's cut their hair short and everybody's all seriously dressed in white and black. And, you know, it's like uh, they didn't want to go back to hair metal, but this is kind of like the 1999 them, I guess, which like that's fine. I think this is where the stylistic, I'll call it stylistic hard rock comes into play. Was this about the same time as uh, Metallica's Load and Reload came out? Reload. Yeah, yeah this is a bit, yeah, because Load came out in what, 95? Yeah, 95, 96, somewhere in there. Yeah, I saw them on that tour. Yeah, so it was like two years later when Reload came out. So yeah. they, they had all their hair cut off and had this more like stylistic look to them, right? I mean, kind of rockers were more clean cut, right? Like if you say Sugar Ray is rock, it's clean cut. Like there wasn't long haired dudes walking around anymore. We even go back and look at uh, Woodstock 99, Dave Ellison's hair shorter than mine. Yeah. You know, so I think that time had gone by where you had to have long hair. Right. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. I mean, any other uh, thoughts on this record other than, you know, I heard repeatedly some of the interviews that Joe Elliott did where, he said that the intention of the band was obviously to return to its former roots and sound and then also to make an upbeat album after Slang because Slang, I mean, yes, it was different, but it was also kind of slow. That record, there wasn't much upbeat stuff on that record. So I think that they achieved that in a lot of places with Euphoria and we'll get into that going track by track. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. Okay, so the album starts with Demolition Man. Huddy, like, I think from the first guitar lick, you can tell, bam, we're back at Hysteria. Like, it's not even a question. Well, you have that, it starts off with that kind of, I don't know if it's a volume swell or an effect, that which they start to use a lot going forward. On, on other songs and there's a theme to this a, a lot of the songs they'll have the guitar and then when they go to the first verse it's just bass and drums and then on like the second stanza the guitar kicks in and i, I actually like that i think they overdo it at times i think the verses and the pre-chorus on this are really really good but i think the actual chorus leaves a lot to be desired i think they're trying to like you said trying to reestablish, hey this is our classic def leopard sound but as we're gonna go through each song the layered vocals, they are abusing it like Zach Wilde does pitch harmonics or a rapper does. Yeah. Or hell yeah. You know, they're, they're just putting them in 
constantly. And Phil Collin, Vivian Campbell, and Joe Elliott wrote the song, and I've got who wrote every song, and I'm going to see if you can pick up on a trend as we go through. Other than the chorus, I think this is a decent to slightly above average song. Yeah, Stephen, I'm with Huddy. I like the pre-chorus better than the chorus, but you know, you got Vivian Campbell, you got Phil Collin. Why do you got to have this other dumbass do the guitar solo? Like, I don't understand why people do that, especially he's a race car driver. This isn't DeWeasel Zappa. Well, you're talking about Damon Hill, the Formula One racer. He only did the uh, ride-out guitar solo at the end of the song. He didn't do the actual guitar solo. And, you know, he's friends. He's a, he's a star. They're big into racing. I think he was uh, next-door neighbors with either Phil Collin or Rick Savage. I don't remember which one. But, uh, you know, they drummed up a friendship, asked him to come do it, and he was excited to be able to have that opportunity. I don't have a problem with that. It's Like I said, it's the ride-out solo at the end of the song. Who, who gives a shit? But, you know, going back to the song, I think this is an excellent kickoff song. I don't completely agree with you guys. I like this song a lot. I like the pre-course. I think the pre-course is very good, but I actually think the course is good too. I mean, come on, Huddy. Living like a caged up animal, criminal, television newsman, so subliminal. That's awesome. But it's those layered compressed vocals are so bright on it that it just it just it turns me off almost every time. And there's too many words. It's like it's like that's not what a chorus is supposed to be to me. There is a lot of words. I agree with you, but I think it's a fun track. It's a good way to start off the record. I like this one. I do. Oh, I like the song. There's no doubt about it. It's just yeah. Um. All right. So we got promises next, and. When a band is going to go back to their classic sound and they had an album that did not have that, okay, you got past the first song, you're like, all right, they're back. And then you get kind of scared that the second song, is it going back to slang or are they sticking with it? And to me, they stuck with it. And I was happy to hear that the second song was very much hysteria. This is as close to a perfectly written pop song with guitars as you could ever have. 
Love this song. People out there listening are going to make fun of me. I know they are. Written by Phil Collin and Mutt Lang. I think they knew they had to swing for the fences on the first one. You bring Mutt Lang in. We know he's got a proven track record. To me, the layered vocals on this aren't bad because they're not as bright. They're a little bit deeper. And I think this is one of the last times in his career that Joe Elliott can sing a really high part with his voice and it not sound really, really strained. I have here, I think Lang was brought in to make this the first single, and I think it was the right one to pick. I think it's a great song, and they've been playing it a lot more lately. So, And Stephen, I love this song, but I thought they made a major mistake here because you listen to that last 30 seconds, and Joe is doing some vocal gymnastics on the fade-out that are absolutely awesome. It's like, God, well, just wait 30 more seconds before you fade it out. What the hell are you doing? Yeah, you're talking about the falsetto he goes into at yeah, the end. Yeah, and hits it's doing those, great. He hits those high notes. Yeah, he's hitting the notes. I hear what you're saying. I don't know that I love those falsetto parts, but I think they're okay where they're located. Let me just say, Promises, I talked about it a little bit earlier. They did this in concert, in one of the later concerts that I saw. This song live made me go out and repurchase this album enough because I was like, what the hell is that song from? Because that's killer. I absolutely love this song. To me, this song is Photograph 2.0. That's how much I think this song is really good. It's got a great course. This song in 1983 would have been as big as Photograph, hands down. I mean, I think this song is a freaking winner. And you talked about Mutt Lang. So Mutt Lang didn't produce the record, but they... Phil Collin is really good friends with Mutt Lang. And so they had Mutt Lang come down and just hang out 
for a few days. And I think he, they said that he came in for four days and more or less just sat on the couch and gave feedback. And that's pretty much all he did, but he got a songwriting credit, I think on what three tunes on this record, two or three tunes on this record. This was one of them. I can't say enough about promises. I really love this. And for me, the one, two punch at the beginning of this album, I'm, pretty happy with it. I mean, I'm like after slang and slang starting out with truth, I'm like demolition man and promises. It's a win-win for me. Does the opening riff remind you guys of Armageddon? I kind of always thought that there was some similarities to it. Yeah, it does to me. And there's a gods of war later, mm-hmm. right? So there's, there's yeah. some rehashing of that happening. Well, I really thought you guys were going to make fun of me for liking this song. Shoot. No. Okay, good. That makes me feel good. So then we get to back in your face and uh, here's what Phil Collins said. We didn't know what direction to go. We were sort of stuck somewhere between the Spice Girls and Oasis. I literally asked a few people in the business as well as fans, what would you like to hear? And everybody said unanimously, there's a huge void and it'd be fucking great if you actually sounded like Def Leppard. So that's what we did. We went back and literally we sort of did another greatest hits. Phil, this song fucking sucks. This song is not a greatest hits. What the fuck is Sonny Pony? Huddy, tell me you didn't like the song, please. This this is when they start peeing in our Cheerios. <laughs> um, all right. This song is bad by Def Leppard standards. I hate the drum machine. I hate the hey chants piped in. You want to get me to dislike a song quick? Have those hey chants, you know, piped in. They are literally singing about going back to their classic sound. That is terrible. That's as, that's as bad as like when rappers talk about how good they can rap. I mean, it's just a complete <laughs> turnoff to me. I have this is pure garbage, and there's zero substance to it, only a faux attempt at trying to be cocky. This is a top 10 bad Def Leppard song, in my opinion.
And Stephen, they try to do the rocket thing by name dropping, but there is an actual line in the lyrics that says, I can scare the pants off the holiest ghost. Like, good Lord, to just end this. <laughs> it is written by Joe Elliott and Phil Collins. Okay. Can tell that this is hugely influenced by Joe Elliott because he's the one that's in love with all the glam stuff. Okay. First of all, it's not one of the top 10 worst Def Leppard songs. The whole album of slang is worse than this. Back in your face, it's Gary Glitter. This is Glam Leopard. You're going to hear a lot of Glam Leopard on their upcoming newest release. That being said, I still <laughs> like this song. I don't love it, and it's a letdown after Demolition Man and Promises, so don't get me wrong, but I don't hate this song. I don't know. I just don't take this song that seriously. It's fun. It's upbeat. It's okay. It's not a ballad. I like that, so... <laughs> Uh, that's kind of where I stand with this song. It's not going to make any of my top Def Leppard playlist, but it's not going to make my worst either. Yeah, it would make my worst. All right, so then we go to Goodbye. And, Huddy, like I said, I hadn't heard this album in a while. And when I heard the song the other day, I'm like, oh, I got to get to the liner notes. This has to be written by Diane Warren. And I was surprised that it wasn't. Rick Savage. Yeah. <laughs> I... <laughs> I like ballads, so I'm not like Steven. I like ballads, but I like ballads with some substance. And anytime I start hearing things about dreams, shoulders, and tears, I'm out. Like you're not, you're just, you're just inserting one cliche after another. Sonically, there's something to work with here. There's a good song on it. Sonically, musically, it's good. The lyrics are so insanely forced. I'm going to read here. You won't ever have to say goodbye. You won't ever have to say I've wasted all my time. In the dream you dream ain't what it seems. Just look into my eyes. You won't ever have to say goodbye. That's horrible. out of ideas you know like hysteria is a great ballad love bites is a great ballad but this is terrible but this goes to what Sonny said they are trying to get the girls back 
this one's not written for us. Well, Huddy, I think that when you read those lyrics, it was dreamy. And I I draw the line at rainbows and unicorns for my ballad. So I'm not putting up with any of that shit. Goodbye is meh. They released a song called Immortal on the B-side of Goodbye because Goodbye was a single at one point off this record. And Immortal is so much better of a song. Of course, it's not a ballad. So they needed a ballad. I get it. Goodbye is just kind of meh to me. Yes, I don't love ballads, but as a ballad, this one is just okay for me. Yeah, and Huddy, I agree with you. It didn't have a lot of substance. That's why I thought it was Diane Warren. Nothing against Diane Warren, right? But she writes some vanilla stuff sometimes, and it's all about the money. And I thought, oh, my God, okay, they went and bought this song because they're trying to get – because, you know, Diane Warren's having all these hits. So here you go, pull her in. I was surprised. All right, so then we go to All Night. I don't need Joe moaning into the mic. Like, that is (laughs) – fucking brutal. You want to talk about a bottom 10 Def Leppard song. This this thing's got a sign over it, no doubt. That, honey, this is terrible, terrible. It's this like fake trying to be R&B sound. It sounds like them trying to sound like Prince. And they got no business being mentioned with Prince. You know, I like a woman who likes to do it fast <laughs> above 96. I mean, like they're, they're they're close to 40 years old at this point. You know, and they're still writing like they're 19 years old. I think it has a cool melody and a cool groove at times. I think there's something there to work with. I can't get past the lyrics, but then the chorus is so, so bad. I want to make love, baby. Oh, yeah. I want to make love, child. Oh, yeah. The let's get personal breakdown. It does remind me of a prince, which goes to show the song had potential, but the lyrics did not. And like, like I said, they're close to 40. And they're trying to write like they're like they're teenagers. This is a top ten bad Def Leppard song too, Sonny. And Sonny, we're five songs in, and we're simpatico, my friend. Yeah, yeah, that's a little scary. I don't ever want to hear David Hudson speak those words ever again. Not the simpatico part, but the "I want to make love, ooh yeah" thing, <laughs> thingy. No, don't. And got to throw a baby in there, and then a child. <laughs> yeah.
And Stephen, I get it. They're trying to write Pour Some Sugar On Me Part 2. And here's what Joe Elliott said about this. Look, if people don't like it, then fuck them. I don't really care. <laughs> well, well, yeah, you told me fuck off with this song because this song is complete shit. you those words mean a great deal to us we're gonna get to sugar too we'll get there but we ain't there yet this is from joe elliott and i quote we also wrote another song where we did kind of a start from scratch type thing we said let's do something really off the wall that ended up being the song all night this was written by phil collin and mutt lang here's my notes on it it's very dancey And I'm not sure that that's a good thing for a rock band. It's not a ballad, so that's a positive thing. It's upbeat. That's a positive thing. I can hear the guitars a little. That's a positive thing. It's sort of fun. But in the end, it reminds me of a porn soundtrack. So those are my notes. That's where I stand with this song. I didn't hate it, but yeah, it's... It's definitely off the wall. I mean, what Elliot said was fairly true, right? When what's sad and shows that they're completely spent creatively on the self-titled album, there's a song called Man Enough. It's the same song with different lyrics, I swear. Well, same vibe to it. But somebody could argue that they're not spent creatively because they're venturing out into different avenues. So, I mean, one could argue that. They definitely, as far as rehashing things, the further we go into these albums this year, I'm starting to notice a lot of rehash shit. And I'm going to talk about some coming up in some of these songs down the list here. But for sure, they're definitely doing some plagiarism of themselves, which, you know, I mean, they certainly aren't the first rock band to do that. Yeah, and I don't have a problem with that. And the next song, Paper Sun, has a little bit of it because you could say this is a sequel to Gods of War. And I'm going to be honest with you, honey, I think this is a better version of Gods of War. I love this song. Absolutely love it. It's it's one of my standouts on, on the album. I always thought it was it had an environmental theme, but it's actually about a bombing that took place in Northern Ireland. And it's a serious song. And to me, a lot of times you can tell when the lyrics aren't going to be sophomoric by the, the guitar intro. It's usually a little, I, I don't know if it's tuned down or what, but there's a certain sound to it. Like you said, Gods of War, it reminds me of White Lightning off Adrenalize. And like I said, the opening guitar part sets the tone for the seriousness. It's not about like debauchery and, and things that the rest of the album is. And the layered vocals here, I think, are set perfectly. They're not too bright in the mix, and that helps to add a little bit of seriousness to the song. This is one of my favorite courses that they do. I really wish they would throw more songs like this in every now and then because it's a well-written song. Phil Collin, Vivian Campbell, Woodruff, the producer, Rick Savage, and Joe Elliott all con- contributed to it.
Yeah, and Stephen, I'm a sucker for this kind of chorus, so follow me here. The title of the song is said by the backing vocals, and then the chorus ends with the lead singer saying that by themselves. It doesn't happen often, but when a chorus is written that way well, man, it catches my ear for whatever reason because it feels like it's, I don't know, it flows well to my ear. And uh, that's what got me here was the chorus. How about you, Steve? Yeah, I can totally understand where you're coming from, and I get it. And yeah, I mean, I agree. I don't. It's not something I listen out for, but it is pleasing to the ear. So here are my notes on this. Uh, and Huddy kind of alluded to it earlier. I've talked about it on just about every one of these episodes we've done this year. What do I always say when we get to this point? I say, this is the epic song from this album. Every Def Leppard album has that epic song. It's been Die Hard the Hunter. It's been White Lightning. It's been Gods of War. And now it's Paper Sun. And what was the difference? Because Sonny doesn't really like any of those other songs. So the next thing I said is no intro to this song. Sonny, you like that? The answer is yes. He likes that. I like the course. I like the breakdown and the change going into the solo. I like that section uh, that breaks down. Uh, that's very good. Yeah, the song overall is a good song. I agree with you guys. It's it's well-written, epic tune. So we go from Paper Sun to It's Only Love. There's a lot of na-na, 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 na. But, Huddy, I'm going to say Brian's It's Only Love is 5,637.58% better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's written by Joe Elliott, Mutt Lang, Savage, and Vivian Campbell. And Sonny, it's like you're reading my notes. I go, you know it's going to suck when it starts off with na-na-na. <laughs> I was like, these lyrics are so bad. You go straight to my head as I lie in my bed. Again, I, the melody has potential, but the lyrics are just so bad. With things like, I dream, I dream has got you in it every minute with you, and it means everything. They're just, they're out of ideas here, lyrically. And they're just trying to appeal at this point to the lowest common denominator. Like, we've got to get these girls back. And a lot of times, this may sound sexist, I don't think that ladies back in this time really listened to the lyrics as much as the sentiment, and as long as it had the good chorus, you know? It just, uh, how do you follow up Paper Sun? It's like, we have a really good song, and then we're just going to put out this generic junk and to me the guitar solo sounds weirdly out of place it almost sounds like a mid-80s cure song now i like the cure but it, the cure does not fit in Def leopard uh whatsoever I wonder if you guys are starting to pick up on a trend here about who's involved in the worst songs but we'll get to that at the end
Stephen, you know, all that being said, I remember uh, so I'm, the other day I'm listening to the album with the lyrics in front of me. And yeah, most of the lyrics are complete shit. But there is a line that I really liked. And the, the line said, it's only love if you're hurting too, right? So basically, I can't be the only one hurting and you don't give a shit. That's not love. That's a pretty goddamn good line. So it's like. It's not bad. Yeah, it's like Mutt got involved and there was some shades of brilliance in some of the songs he did. But then some of the involvement he had, he was just trying way too hard. Well, I'm glad I don't pay attention to the lyrics as much as you do. And I've said that from day one. And, Huddy, I actually think that you're on to something with saying that, you know, as long as the lyrics and the chorus are good and as long as the melodies are good, I think, and the hooks, that's what sells songs. And I tend to believe that's true to a point. I mean, we can look at a lot of hit songs over the course of history that have ridiculously stupid lyrics, but they're hits. I think the human ear probably zeroes in on melody hooks and, you know, maybe something that's very easy for them to remember and sing the na, 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 na. I mean, a lot of people love that kind of shit for me. And maybe you guys can help me because I couldn't figure it out. This song reminds me of a few different pop songs, but I can't place which ones it reminds me of. I think it's a decent song, but nothing special. It sets itself apart for me. Uh, you know, the melodies, although they're good, the melodies sound borrowed to me. Is there a melody in this song that reminds you guys of something else? Because I can't think of what it is. To, to me, it sounds like a mid to late 90s female borderline pop song like something you would hear but nothing specific huh no but it's it's so generic that i mean i think you could apply it to a lot of things yeah and maybe that's it maybe that's exactly it is it's just it's a generic thing that reminds me of everything i don't think it's horrible i've certainly heard worse but yeah there's nothing special about this tune so i'm a believer talking about the next song we'll get to in a second that when you're kind of a music nut like us you can tell if a song is going to be good sometimes from the title, right? So, like today, I was listening to an album from a band called Luminous Vault, right? I should have known better. But then the album had songs Incarnate Flame Arise, Divine Transduction, Earth, Damon. I should have known better. I listened to one song like shit. I feel the same way about 21st century Sha La 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 Girl. <laughs> should have known from the time I read the title that this has got T-Rex written all over it, which Joe just needs to shut the fuck up. Huddy, you love this song? No, I don't like the song. I do like T-Rex, though. This is a desperate, desperate attempt to get on the radio. I mean, <laughs> desperate attempt. And like I've said so many times, there's potential there. There's potential for this to be good. But man, the pre-course lyrics are bad. I have here, they're desperately wanting this to be a radio hit. I think the opening guitar progression is really good, and then it kicks into that familiar bass drum vocals to start the verse off, and then Phil and, and Viv come in. But yeah, it's cliche. It's it's kind of the thing though at the time. If you go back and put yourself, everybody was singing about the 21st century. You know, you you had all these you had all these songs about we're going into the 21st century, and then looking back in the past, going forward, and I think they were just trying to ride that wave. And they, I think they thought this was the next single after a ballad, promises, ballad, and then this. And I think it was a pretty sad attempt. I do not like it. 
Steven, you know, I, I thought they were trying to do Pour Some Sugar On Me with All Night. They missed. They're trying to do Pour Some Sugar On Me again with this song. It came a little bit closer. I think it just kind of come down to stop trying to do Pour Some Sugar On Me. Oh, my God. You guys are so wrong. This song is amazing. This is the best song on the album. No, I'm just kidding. Anyway, look, here's where I was going with this. This was the song I was referencing earlier. You were talking about All Night. This song is definitely Sugar 2.0. Help me out here and, and just go with me on this. Ever since Pour Some Sugar On Me with Hysteria, they have tried to recapture Pour Some Sugar On Me on every album. If you think about it, right? After Hysteria came, uh, Adrenalize, Let's Get Rocked, right? Total Pour Some Sugar On Me. After that, Slang. The only song on Slang was the title track slang, which was very sort of pour some sugar on me. After that, with this album, I mean, this is total try to recapture pour some sugar on me. So I don't know what it is, but each time they've tried to recapture it. That being said, I don't hate this song. I kind of like it. I think the chorus is dorky, but Dave makes a good point where everybody was trying to sing about 21st century around this time. Yes. And definitely T-Rex is involved. Yes. But overall, I really, I really kind of actually dig the guitar riff more so than pour some sugar on me. I like that chord progression in the guitar riff itself. It's a little bit heavier. I like the guitars a little bit more out front in the mix on this song. So it's okay for me. I kind of dig it. Steven, you're totally on something about the pour some sugar on me. I think they lucked upon that song. <laughs> so, you know, that was the last one they recorded. It's pretty much nonsensical. But you're right. Let's get rock. It's an attempt to try to go back to what worked. I think as we get further into the year and further into the records, I'm willing to bet that we find a pour some sugar on me 2.0 on every record leading up to even this latest record that hasn't been released yet. We'll get there when we get into the rest of the albums the rest of the year, but uh, definitely it's they've got a they've got a hard on for the song that saved hysteria and why wouldn't you? It saved hysteria. Maybe they're trying to recapture lightning in a bottle. So then we get to To Be Alive. And from bands that I listen to, when the new guitar player brings something from their old band, sometimes it doesn't work that well. To me, we might, all three of us might not agree here, but uh, 
I like the original version from Clock, and I actually like this version. I think it works, and I think Vivian hit on something here because I think he heard Joe's voice doing this song in his head, and to me, it worked. David, what do you think? All right, so I'm glad that you mentioned sent that to me right before we did it. That this I did not know this was a cover because I think the opening of it in the first verse have some similarities to Love Bites, the way it's recorded. Of the ballads, this is my favorite ballad on here over like goodbye and it's only love. I don't think it's terrible. And I know that that's sounds kind of like an insult at this point, but we've had, you know, they've laid some real turds so far. And I think it has a lot of, I don't know, a lot of potential. I really like the melody on it. And I like the guitar playing on it, that kind of floating, you know, and, and you can tell that's not a Phil Collins type riff. And so um, I'm glad that you pointed out that it's Vivian Campbell and a guy by the name of PJ Smith wrote it. Was this released as a single? Because if I was going to release a ballad, this would be the one I went with. But I got a feeling goodbye is what they went with, if I had to guess. Correct. Yeah, this is the best of those three ballads by far. To me, Stephen, I mean, it's mid-tempo gem, and it makes me want to go check out more clock music because that means Vivian had some chops, and it just didn't land whenever they released it. Well, I never heard of the Project Clocks, uh, and I like to think that I, you know, I kept pretty good tabs on Vivian Campbell, but I don't remember that. I knew Viv had some chops because I liked a lot of the River Dogs stuff that he did. So, you know, I knew the guy could write a little bit. To be honest, I don't love the clocks version that you sent us. But actually, I do agree with the rest of you in that To Be Alive is a much better ballad than Goodbye. Now, Hudson, I got to go back. I don't consider 
it's uh, only love to be a ballot. Why, why would you consider that a ballot? Just in the general, uh, the average person on the street would think it's that. It's got harmony. It's got melody. It's slow. Kind of like when people say Guns N' Roses is hair metal. They're not. It's just you gotta, you've got, we have to categorize something. And so I think when, like, especially like females, when they hear the melody and the, the kind of tender vocals, that they're going to lump that in as a ballad. You agree with that, Sonny, that it's it's only love is a ballad? It's on the line. Okay. All right. You take the na-na-na's out, it's a ballad. Uh, okay. Uh, goodbye, definitely a ballad. To be alive, definitely a ballad. I like to be alive much better than goodbye, as I said. I also like the slide guitar solo a lot more. It's still a ballad for me. So then we get to an instrumental disintegrate, the first instrumental in 18 years. So how do you bodes the question? Because I like the instrumental. So it just feels like maybe they couldn't figure out a melody to it. It's pretty much the same thing over and over again for, for a couple of minutes. I like Switch 625. thought that was a, a good song. I don't know why they put this on here, though. It went nowhere. So, Stephen, to give you some history here, this album went to number 11 at the top, right? The top 10 when it was number 11. Number 10, Astro Lounge by Smash Mouth. Fan Mail by TLC was number 9. Austin Powers' The Spy Who Shacked Me soundtrack was number 8. Come On Over by Shania Twain was number 7. Devil Without a Cause, Kid Rock was number 6. Veni Venti Vesi by Ja Rule was number five. Baby One More Time by Britney Spears was four. Californication by Red Hot Chili Peppers was number three. Ricky Martin's self-titled was number two. And the Diamond Album Millennium by Backstreet Boys was number one. That's a lot of competition. I'm not sure an instrumental that goes nowhere is going to put you over the top of those ten. I mean, this is the the pure definition of of filler. My notes, because it's two minutes and 51 seconds, my notes were sounds like a song idea that was never finished and that Joe Elliott was too lazy to write words to. I bet if you asked them, they would say, yes, this was a song idea that we just never really quite finished and we wanted to add some length to the CD because this is a full-on CD, uh, meaning that I think you would have to look, but this is getting close to where they're only making CDs. There's no more cassettes, no more albums. They're making CDs. And so they needed a little bit longer time. Yeah, I can't be a thousand percent sure about that, but that's what I'm I'm betting. Because what I say, this album's running in at 51 minutes, right? 
I don't know. There's just, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I don't hate it. It was originally called Spanish Sky. And I'm like, really? Spanish Fly? Kind of very close. They, maybe that's maybe that's why they changed it to disintegrate. I don't know. But just weird to me. You wonder if this was a jam that they used to warm up. And they were like, let's just put it on there. Yeah, yeah. could have been. So then we get to a song called Guilty. And, Huddy, I don't know if you are a Survivor fan, but this feels like Survivor to me. My knowledge of Survivor, Survivor is, I mean, it's limited to the hits. I thought it was a, an attempt to recreate Hysteria. I thought it sounded a lot like Hysteria. It has potential. But, man, that quick buildup when they go into the chorus is so cheesy, where they speed it up and go into it in the lyrics. Just real quick. If you mean hope, if you mean fear – of those words you've been longing to hear. If you mean faith, if you mean love, then I'm guilty. I'm guilty of all of the above. But one thing I do like, I do love the gang vocal melody that comes out of the solo. I think that's cool. But other than that, I think they're trying to recreate the sound of hysteria. They're going into this mid-tempo thing, and they've got this chorus, this melody, and we've got to put some lyrics to it. Unfortunately, they put those lyrics in it. Guilty of all of the above. Stephen, I actually like that. I think it's an underrated gem. This would go on my Def Leppard playlist. <laughs> oh, man, are we way off on this one. Here's my notes, and I'll keep it short and sweet for you. Meh. Nothing great about this. No hooks or great melody. There's nothing about this song that I really like. No. This, <laughs> no. Next. <laughs> so then we go to the slow burner Day after day, probably the heaviest song of the record. Huddy, this is a shot at Pyromania, I guess. I love this song. It's heavy lyrically and sonically. This one could have been a single, too, to try to get some of the the other people back. But I think due to the nature of it, probably didn't. The lyrics on this are really good. I shed my skin, got a new disguise. My heart still beats, and I'm still the same. Do you know my name? I believe this is about drugs or depression and the person in the song has never shaken it and their circumstances change, but that, that demon comes back just has a different face every time. 
which uh, I, I, I love those kind of lyrics. You may could say this was written about Steve Clark. Um, you know, obviously they had that experience with him. But yeah, this sounds like it could have fit on Pyromania for sure. And the vocals, I love the gang vocals on this one. I think they're done tastefully and it's not so bright. It's, and, the, and the song just kind of has this rolling feeling to it, rolling and tumbling feeling to it. Like it's just, it's just going, it's going, it's going. Definitely a top three song on the album for me. Just look in my eyes I shed my skin Got a new disguise My heart still beats And I'm still the same Do you know my name? It's
And Steven, to me, this one has the best guitar solo. That intro into the guitar solo is awesome. And then the guitar solo is just awesome. Yeah. So this is where doing these album reviews and spending time with an album leading into the review itself to me is so much fun and so valuable and why I really enjoy doing these album reviews each, each month. And then as a project throughout the year, day after day, (laughs) here's my notes. Oh my God. Feeling exactly like too late for love. I think with a little work, this might've been a great song. I think it's a good song, but I think that it's lacking just slightly a little bit of extra work. I bet this was a Pyromania era rework song, meaning that it came from the Pyromania sessions. Go listen to Day After Day and listen to Too Late for Love back to back. The chord progression, the tempo, everything is so very, very, very similar. You guys will be surprised when you listen to those tune tunes back to back. It's not that they sound exactly like one another. You'll see what I'm talking about when you do that. I like this song a lot. To me, this is the hidden gem on the record because I don't remember this song. If you'd asked me about day after day, I'd been like, that's a Def Leppard song. What album? I have no idea. And they buried it deep in the album, too. This should have been song number four. And I agree with you on Too Late for Love. Musically, they have a lot of similarities. But I think some of these lyrics on this one fit more with the theme of on the Slang album. But this is this is a great song. Like you said, it's a hidden gem. I had forgotten about this song until we started going through this. And then we come to the end of the album with Kings of Oblivion. And this song doesn't fit the album. Like, now you went to, like, Priest or Maiden, I guess, with a Def Leppard chorus. Like, I, I don't quite understand the song. I, I would have just left it off the album. David? I mean, are you reading my notes? I mean, I have it. It has that galloping beat, though, that like you would hear on the first album in that early stages of the new wave of British heavy metal. But then after that, you lose me on it. It, it yeah. you're right. It do, it doesn't fit at all.
and Stephen, I like it that the guitar solos are a little bit longer, but the song's not great. So it's like I would never go back and listen to it again. Yeah, I'm going to play Mutt Lang on this song. It feels like it would have been much better served to slow down the tempo on this song and let it breathe a little bit more. Find a pocket groove. The course to me, when they go into the course, it feels rushed. It, it feels like something's wrong with the recording and it's sped up like a half step. It just feels wrong. And I'm surprised somebody didn't go, hey, let's let's just try this like slow it down a little bit because I think it would be a different song if it was slowed down a little bit. I mean, it literally on that course, it feels like they're, they're trying to hurry it to push it out. The bridge into the solo section to me helps, but overall, I think the song is a good idea overall, but it's not well executed at all in my opinion. So that's the end of the album. I want to get everybody's top two, bottom two. I'll tell you for me, Four of the songs are absolutely terrible, so it was tough to come up with a bottom two, but I stuck with All Night and Back in Your Face. And for me, the top two songs are the first two songs, Demolition Man and Promises. Huddy? The worst songs, you can just throw a dart, but I'm going to have to go with uh, Goodbye and then All Night. Uh, th- those those two, great on my nerves to worst. Promises is my favorite song on here, and Paper Sun is number two. Steven? For me, I'm with Sonny. The favorite two are Promises and Demolition Man, with Promises ultimately being the best song on this album, in my opinion. My least favorite are Goodbye and Guilty. I don't like either one of those tunes. And then to wrap up the album a little, I was thinking, I'm like, all right, yes, the album brings you back. Okay. But basically, it's after you cheated on your wife. So is that really going (laughs) to like work? Like, I don't know. And... I get it. A lot of the songs would fit between like 85 and 90 and may have brought women back to the band if they were still listening, but it ain't bringing the guys back because you don't have Pyromania 2. So I guess, I guess Elliot would just say, well, fuck the guys. We need them anyway. And in the end, they were kind of right because now that they're a legacy band, it is still wall to wall women. There is abs- The guys are only there because their women wanted to go. And there's plenty of all 10 of my f- women friends went and we're going to go and we left our husbands at home kind of thing happening. So in the end, girl, I guess girl it Girl's night out. Yeah, basically that's what it is. Huddy, like if you had to kind of compare this to the first five or six, did they come back? No, and I think it was such an obvious attempt to try to do it. It made them look even just kind of pathetic, to be honest with you. I don't think they came back. I don't know. I think there's some albums that you guys are going to do that that came back a little bit better, but this was obvious what it was and that makes it even worse because like you said, he basically says we had no choice but to do this. And that interview with Phil Collin, like they told us the other stuff was terrible. And so you got to wonder, was their heart into it? That's what I wonder. Like, are they just like, Hey guys, we're stuck in this mold. We're we're not going to be able to get out of it and we might as well just embrace it. And I think they fall flat. And Steven, they even said, fuck adrenalize. We need to go all the way back to hysteria. And I'll tell you 12 years is a goddamn lifetime in music. Like, it's just not going to work. Well, for me, here's my overall thought of this record. I think it is a much better record than a lot of the general fan base gives it credit. I think it is better. It's it's garnered some ugly thoughts on this record, and I think it is much better than what's being said about it. That being said, if you take slang out of the mix, pretend like slang never got made, to me, they've still increasingly gotten worse with every album after pyromania so from pyromania to hysteria 
was a little bit of a shift, but to me, not a, a great album from, uh, from hysteria to adrenalize is okay. There's some good stuff on it, but still not as good as pyromania. And then from adrenalize skipping slang and coming here, there's some good stuff on it, but it's still not as strong as pyromania. I think that they enjoyed doing this record. I don't think they were forced into this record because everything that comes after this record is sort of, I mean, it's along the same lines, right? They haven't strayed that far from this type of record since they put it out. So that's my thoughts. I mean, I really do think that songs like uh, Demolition Man and Promises for sure are great. And then it has some hidden gems like Day After Day. And, you know, we talked about To Be Alive being a great ballad and Paper Sun. So it has some bright spots on this record. That's my thoughts. All right. So let's uh, see what's going on in Kiss World. You wanted the best, but you got the best. The hottest band in the world, Kiss! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So for the historic moment, we're talking about June 8th, 99. So we are nine months after Cycle Circus is released. It was supposed to be the four originals coming back and recording. We now know that's not true. That didn't happen. There was even rumors that Paul and Gene paid Ace and Peter not to play on Cycle Circus. That album was released in fall of 98. Tour ended in April of 99. So really, by the time June comes around, most likely Paul and Gene are planning farewell tour because they've been with Peter and Ace for three years now, and I'm sure it's been long enough. So Kiss is kind of at a standstill. But as we know throughout the years, the bands that Kiss influenced are not in a standstill. They're still there. So in 1999, there was a Kiss tribute album released called Kiss of Death, a sick tribute to Kiss. And trust me, you have not heard music until you hear a band called Vile do Strange Ways, or a band called Hostile Intent doing Deuce, or a band called Crematorium doing Cold Gin, or Blood Coven doing God of Thunder. There's some interesting stuff. So just for you, the avid listeners, here's a band called Debauchery doing Detroit Rock City.
I'd like to start off and apologize to all the listeners of the Grown Up Rock podcast, because typically when we do historic moments, most of the stuff, and especially when we do the cover songs, they're okay. But this was a complete heap of shit. I listened to this and I was like, did you send me the right audio file? Because this is awful. I mean, this is a steaming pile of crap. That drummer, I'm not even sure that drummer's keeping time. It sounds like it's sped up. It's, ugh, this song is awful. This, not the song, this version of this song is awful. It sounds like the singer from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones is singing on it. Yeah, when you sent this to me, I was like, see, being for real? I didn't, I, 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 I didn't want to hurt your feelings if you really had strong feelings about it. They're positive. I was like, well, I'll just say it's not my thing. But yeah, it's. Yeah, see, I don't, I don't give a shit. I'll just tell him it sucks ass. Yeah, I mean, like, you can't polish a turd. This is terrible. I mean, this is absolutely horrible. Like you said, I think the drummer's just like, I got this this beat I'm going to play and everything else. I, I don't care if it if it matches it or not. You can literally <laughs> hear him messing up when he does the rolls. It's awful. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm i not in love with this version. Don't get me wrong. I, I wanted to share it because, well, one, I wanted to put you guys through some pain. But second, it just goes to show you Kiss has cast a wide net of folks that they've influenced, right? And Here's bands, and you listen to the rest of the album. Uh, honestly, that was the best song out of that album, the one I played for you guys. So, But it just kind of goes to show that they touched a lot of folks. However they touched them, I'm not much of this speed metal, black metal type fan, really. So I don't really get the death metal vibe at all. And Kiss songs are more upbeat. So when you kind of make them death metal they don't work too well. But uh, they touched a lot of these guys. I mean, that, that's just how it is. I'm sure they were the gateway drug for a lot of people. We always make fun of it, but we always say all roads lead to kiss. It's really, I mean, if you tried to do like six degrees of separation from people that were influenced by kiss, it would be crazy. I mean, it is what it is. But yeah, that that's awful shit. <laughs> yeah. And Huddy, and I know you're not a huge kiss fan, but. And I think, you know, of course, the Stones, the Beatles, Alice Coopers of the world, like they obviously had an influence in rock. There's no doubt about that. But I think if you compare them to Kiss, Kiss was doing stuff that felt doable. So if you were looking at, you know, it's like, I'm not the best guitar player on the planet. I might not be the best songwriter on the planet. But look, those guys are doing it. So I could probably do it too, right? I mean, I, I would agree with that. I mean, you're not going to be able to go out and play, you know, David Gilmore solo and comfortably numb, but you can play the rock and roll all night solo. And I, I think you're right. And I, like I said, I'm not a big Kiss fan at all, but they uh, cannot deny their influence. I think they absolutely should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer just based on their influence. Even people like, I mean, like Tom Morello, massive Kiss fan. Uh, they, Garth Brooks, <laughs> you know, you're talking about casting the wide net. I loved his version of, what was that? Um, on that Hard album. Luck Woman. Yeah, I thought it was great. Yeah. But yeah, you cannot deny the influence. And I think, I never thought about that, but I think you're right. I mean, none of their stuff, I mean, I'm not a musician, but none of it sounds remotely complicated. Which is probably why, you know, every cover band can play rock and roll all night. Well, you hear a lot of musicians talk about the first solo that they ever learned was an Ace Frehley solo or something like that. So there's a lot of validity in they were achievable. The uh, the new musicians were able to achieve some of those guitar solos. And, you know, that's a lot of why a lot of the grunge bands got started because they didn't have to be ace musicians to play punk or grunge or garage band or whatever you want to call that kiss was over that line and got them started whereas the grunge and the punk stopped short of that line 
and were okay with that. You know, I think Kiss more influenced the 80s hairband guys because there were a lot of great players in that batch of, of musicians, you know? So, yeah, overall, Leopard, Euphoria, I would listen to some of it again. I mean, there was more, I would say four shit songs and nine good songs to me. I would think maybe six songs that aren't good, but the rest are either like average or slightly above average to really good with, I mean, and like we love all three of us left off day after day, but I think we'd all agree. That's, that's great. Def Leppard music. So they had, they had stuff to work with there. And even some of the bad songs I kept saying had potential. And I don't know if you realized it, but when you go through there, if Rick Savage's name is beside it, odds are it's not a good song. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Savage. (laughs) Once again, we get to the bass player. (laughs) (laughs) no it's look it's all good it is what it is uh i agree with you sonny i think that overall there's some good songs on this record and uh a few bad ones but to this day i still have promises on a lot of my uh mixes because i just i love that song i think it's great and day after day i have a feeling is going to be making more appearances because honestly i just completely forgot about this song and they have started to embrace promises in the last five or six years. They did it as the uh, dead flatbirds that opened up those uh, hysteria residencies. And I was going through the other day and looking at set lists, and they're still putting it in there every now and then now. So it's good to see they went back to that because when they went on that tour, I went and looked at a lot of the set lists. You know, they've obviously played promises every show. But then after that, everything else was very sporadic that they demolition man was probably the second most played, but I'm glad they're embracing at least promises. That's a great tune. Yeah, I mean, that's my biggest issue with Def Leppard Live these days is just really they can't get away from the songs that they feel like they have to play. There are probably three or four songs that they should just take out of the set list that, in my opinion, they don't have to play. Def Leppard's got this new album coming out, right? It's supposed to be, it'll be out probably by the time this uh, episode comes out. But see, to me, a legacy band like that, doesn't have to release new music. They can go cherry pick a song or two like Promises and Paper Sun and just re-release them as singles on the way to a greatest hits too. And 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 you can pepper those songs into the into the uh, set list and all that kind of. You don't have to go do new music if you don't want to. But I appreciate that they are doing it because like some of it and dislike some of it. To me, at least you're doing what you are, which is being a musician and writing material. I think that it's incredibly lazy of legacy bands just not to do anything creatively. I really am not a fan of that. So bands like, you know, bands like Thunder and bands like Def Leppard that consistently still put out music, Sticks, another one. I just, I appreciate it. You don't have to love it. It's up to you whether you love it or not, but at least they're doing it. You know, you're still going to get all the, all the music that you like in the concert or at least uh, the hits. Anyhow, they're not going to play. None of them are dumb. They don't play the, uh, well, Iron Maiden, but <laughs> I was going to say they don't play the, the new album front to bat unless you're Maiden, of course, <laughs> but yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. It just feels bad to me that like a song like Paper Sun is just dead. Mm-hmm. You're never going to hear it. Mm-hmm. And it's a great song. Could you put that on the new album? Maybe. I don't know. But there is a gap in some of our favorite 
bands that are now legacy bands. Mm -hmm. This gap between whether you want to time it at 93 to about 2003 Mm -hmm. or 2006 even, that if you released any good songs in there, nobody's heard it because nobody gave a shit. Yeah, I agree with you. I I, I think that there is definitely... Uh, definitely that, you know, what might be a fun idea and honestly, kiss could have been great and done this and it would have been fantastic. And it would have been something that the fans would have loved. But I think what would be really cool is these legacy bands, especially the ones that are basically headlining and don't need to, they don't want to take out a new Euro band like we've been begging for, for a hundred years. What would be cool is just go find a great tribute band and tell the tribute band that they need to do your catalog and do all the shit that you're not going to do. So you could find a killer tribute band that does the shit right, but they're playing all the deep covers, just like what Dead Flatbird did, except the band doesn't want to do that because they don't want to play three hours worth of music. I thought that was genius. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I thought it was genius as well. It's just the band, they're, you know, they don't, they can't be performing for three hours a night. They're too old to do that. So find what I'm saying is do that. Just find a bunch of young ringers that can play the shit and play it well. And then you get that opening up for you. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I think the, that'll never happen with Kiss. Paul can't have somebody out there possibly outdoing them. Like he can't have Todd Kearns doing 80s kiss before he gets on stage like paul will lose it they fucking do it on the boat yeah but i think that's different i don't think they can go on a world tour well, if he way. does that that means there has to be a functioning microphone on stage here we go here we go <laughs> all right anyway hudson uh you want to plug your podcast one more time before we get up on out of here yeah digital kill the radio star and uh state of america if you like the black crows listen to us if you like a little bit of everything listen to uh digital kill the radio star there you go. Our regular Renaissance podcaster, David Hudson. Huddy, thanks for uh, coming on and doing Euphoria with us. Hey, I do want to tell you guys, like, I really, really enjoy these episodes. I think I wind up texting you guys every Sunday afternoon. I think it's a great idea. I think the way you're approaching it, it I, I look forward to the end of the month every month. And even on albums that I'm not a fan of, I find something I like. So thank you. I really enjoy them. What do you hear next year? I've already got next year locked up. Even my co-host doesn't know what my plan is for next year. (laughs) All right. Well, that's it. I don't have anything else to add to the state of euphoria. Hollywood, you got anything to add before we get up on out of here? Thanks for listening. Thanks for putting up with us. There's no more pyromanias. I apologize. Yep. And next month, Good Lord, we're at X or 10 or what I like to call the bullet to the head. Anyway, we'll see you next month. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 